Chris Sampson, welcome to the Muller Time Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, man. You've been no, very, man. Pers- very persistent. Hey, yeah, Chris. Which is I good. Compliment. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. It's a Saturday. Um, so, Chris, um, you're the direct. Actually, Chris, why don't you tell my audience what you do? You're a cyber analyst. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I'm basically the chief of research for Tapestry, the terror asymmetrics project on strategies, tactics, and radical ideologies, otherwise known as Tapestry. I work under Malcolm Nance. And anyone who's been following the Trump-Russia case probably by now has at least run into uh, the former spy guy from the U.S. Navy. And uh, my job is to pretty much do the research underneath his umbrella. So when he says, I need to know about, you know, this hacking effort or that, you know, uh, particular person, you know, my job is to either work, you know, to give the response myself or work with our researchers to gather that information and get it on his desk. Yeah, I can say with 100% certainty, my entire audience loves Malcolm Nance and loves what you guys do. Okay, good. Um, hey, Chris, so I want to ask you first, you and I have talked quite a bit, in, I mean, you know, in the in the past, uh, right. although this is our first interview, but what do you think about this Mueller report and what we saw or what we didn't see? Well, we didn't see. That's an important way to look at it. Well, the way I see it is that, you know, in just the work I'm doing uh, as his researcher, you know, I, I, I'm carrying around approximately a thousand pages of uh, indictments and testimony and that's just the stuff i printed if i were to actually print out all of the testimony including the veselnitskaya and the uh, akmechin uh, those were the guys who met with uh, donald trump jr manafort and kushner you know in uh, june 2016 if i were to print those out i'd be at you know approximately 2000 pages you know <laughs> So there's a lot of stuff I don't print just out of, you know, saving paper. But I print these things out so that when I'm offline, I can kind of scour over the documents. And if I'm walking around with a thousand pages of these guys and their uh, complicit, you know, activities, then I I can imagine that the Mueller report's uh, backlog of just evidence is going to be, you know, several thousand pages long. Just the testimonies alone are going to be that way. So when we finally see this, report, we should be seeing, you know, at least a very robust 400-something page report. And, you know, I, I would like to see it, you know, uh, personally, because the work I've done with Malcolm, we've done based on open source material. You know, we didn't have, we didn't call up agencies and say, give us some sort of special access. And we're not like some conspiracy theorists who out there claim that they have some sort of inside scoop to someone who works in counterintelligence. We're doing it based on what's in the public record, right? And -hmm. in the public record, there is ample evidence of at least tacit collusion between uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, Roger Stone, uh, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, uh, and uh, Jared Kushner. You know, these are people who kept doing things that should have been simple phone calls to the FBI, Right. I'll give you an example. The the June uh, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower uh, with Veselnitskaya, with Natalia Veselnitskaya, the uh, the supposed uh, you know adoption lawyer, right? Well, mm-hmm. she had been running around Washington with uh, Dana Rohrabacher and others, you know, peddling uh, you know an interest in trying to remove sanctions before that. And Donald Trump Jr. knew that that meeting had nothing to do with adoptions, and he knew exactly what it was about because of his own admission in the public record of having an uh, an email exchange with Rob Goldstone where he was told, we have the dirt on Hillary Clinton, and he says, if if it is what you tell me it is, uh, we love it, you know? 
that's when you're supposed to place the phone call to the FBI and say, right. wait a minute, I've got a foreign national or foreign nationals trying to give me uh, information on our opponent. And as much as I'd love it, the right thing to do is to turn this in. So let's say he didn't know that. Maybe he's you know dumb as a brick and he didn't know that. Paul Manafort knew it because yeah. he's a lawyer or was a lawyer. See, he's not a lawyer anymore. Yeah. And um, this is the point. You know, these guys weren't looking to turn over the the truth. They wanted to find everything they could. So cutting them any slack to say, okay, let's assume they didn't understand that. Let's assume they're so eager and greedy to do something, they just sort of forgot that there are any rules to this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they fell for the dangle all the same, you know, whether it was those guys with the Trump Tower, whether it was George Papadopoulos and Joseph Massoud in London, or whether it was uh, Roger Stone, you know, playing footsies with uh, the GRU through Guccifer and playing footsies with uh, WikiLeaks. Now, one more point I want to make is I, I don't have to second guess whether these things happen because in every case that I've mentioned so far, the people who are accused have come forward and admitted that they were involved in those activities. They, right. they try to fog it in some way, but they have all acknowledged their participation. So I'm not grabbing in the dark and saying, you know, maybe I think that they had a conversation. Maybe I think, you know, there was some, some, uh, some communications. We know that they were because each one of those particular people I've mentioned have, have been in the public admitting their actions go ahead we, we also no, no no i was just gonna say like he literally said it on tv like we don't have to be like i don't have to you know what i'm saying like it was right. on television right Russia, well, and then, and then, yeah then there's donald trump i'm glad you brought it back to that because i keep i keep avoiding the main guy you know the main guy goes up there on july 27th uh 2016 and says you know russia if you're listening what about those thirty thousand emails right. i'm sure the press would reward you mightily now let's uh, again. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be devil's advocate and mm-hmm. cut him slack. Maybe he didn't really believe that Russian hackers were behind anything. Okay, okay. Let's just assume that for a half a second. Well, we'll just cut him a break. And this is for argument's sake. Then how come on October 10th, after he had been well briefed by the intelligence agencies, was he out there put, pushing WikiLeaks, doing the exact same thing? He had already been briefed at that point. So. By July 27th, we don't have information that he had been briefed as part as a candidate uh, on the intelligence knowledge of what was going on in the background. But we do know that by October 10th, in the first debate, when he dropped that information, he had been briefed. And that's where I start saying, you know too much, you're saying too much, and your ego is running crazy, so you can't shut up about it. You're eager to attack using you know this foreign help from Russia. Right. Um, in the case of uh, uh, WikiLeaks, Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump Sr., um, we, you know, when I read the text between Donald Trump Jr. and WikiLeaks, I, I do see him being uh, standoffish. In other words, I don't see him you know, salivating the way he was with that interview. And, and I, I, I have to, in my job, be very objective. So I can't walk in trying to find guilt. I have to see if it's, if it's actually there. Sure. Um, there is a link, a link that was sent to him by WikiLeaks that said, we would really love it if you would share this. And he did not share it, but Donald Trump's main account, only a day or so later, did share that exactly as stated by WikiLeaks through Donald Trump Jr., through the head honcho himself. And, and to me, that's enough right there. You, 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 right. You, if you had any ethics about you, if you understood what was happening, uh, you wouldn't do that. And he did. So, so cr- Chris, yeah, that's, that's no, you're exactly right. So I, I know you're you're a cyber terrorism analyst. I, you're not, you're not a lawyer, right? 
No, I grew up in a law firm uh, as a little kid running on, running around writing on the back of depositions. But no, I'm not a lawyer. The, the reason I brought that up was only because why I know n neither you or I are lawyers, but so why are these guys not in jail? I don't. That's what I don't understand. Am I, what, right. am I missing something? Well, I would assume that part of the thing we have to remember as Americans is we do have a process. We do have a very formal process that allows for investigations. And I think that the thing that we're a lot of people wanting to see out of this final Mueller report is the efforts from the counterintelligence guys in the FBI. Um, if you watch MSNBC, you see guys like Frank Fugluzzi and uh, there are certain people, uh, Andrew McCabe, mm -hmm. uh, who are counterintelligence specialists, right? And when you rattle, I do know this from my work uh, trying to track ISIS, for instance, when you're on a subject that you're trying to find everything about uh, in, in process, you don't want to reel them in too quickly because in doing so, you will spook all the people that you're, you're keeping an eye on, right? It's one thing to keep an eye on your, your target A, right? Um, as you're doing that, you have to realize that they're in contact with others and in order to make sure that that operation is not disrupted um, a lot of times you want to keep that going as far as possible so if we look back a little bit um, the I'll give you an example that's not straight out of the FBI uh, the CrowdStrike company that was doing the DNC uh, cyber scan they didn't just walk in on uh, you know June 15th and do a scan and put out a report they actually caught the action from the GRU in process. Mm -hmm. So in a way, that's sort of like counterintelligence. They came in there. They saw hacking going on. They didn't immediately disrupt it. They, they sat there and watched for a while. They wanted to see what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the public record on the counterintelligence effort itself, the FBI had been watching Paul Manafort uh, from his contacts because they had been watching his work with the Party of Regents and Yanukovych and his work with uh, Konstantin, Konstantin Kalimnik, who was known to be a uh, you know, military, uh, Russian military guy. And that alone was the first um, counterintelligence uh, effort related to this that we saw. And the next was Michael Flynn's behavior. Mm -hmm. Why was Michael Flynn suddenly cozying up to these guys? As yep. you get into that process, then you started getting the FISA requests on Manafort, the FISA requests on Carter Page. Uh, and let me bring up Carter Page for a minute. Carter Page, for instance, had already been part of a, a case that dated back to 2013 with uh, three Russian uh, FSB guys, uh, um, or SVR guys, And um, sorry. And they had, it was uh, uh, Victor Podobny was the case, and uh, Burikov. And two of those were undercover, essentially. They were, they were non-official and uh, you know, went to trial, and one, you know, the others were kicked back to Russia. And these are the guys that called Carter Page a complete idiot. But <laughs> they said he's so ambitious to get his business, we can't wait to hand him some fake documents and essentially use him. And he's right. such a moron, we know that this will be easy. So if, if you look at the fact that this is not just about the, uh, the campaign behavior, there had been a trail of activity predating the campaign that already had the FBI's attention on the counterintelligence grid alone. So let's move forward to the case that we see on, on hand. We have a process in which now the president of the United States gets to kind of manipulate the Department of Justice, slow the thing down, throw sand in the wax, uh, uh, throw sand and wax in the gears, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he wants a uh, attorney general who's going to give him the results he wants. And when he didn't get from that from Sessions, you know, he fired Sessions eventually, put Matt Whitaker in. We didn't get that guy. 
who does he bring up? William Barr. And what is yeah. William Barr know, uh, known for in the past? Well, Iran Contra. Covering you know, up stuff. Right. Here's the guy who's a pro in the 90s of covering up right. malfeasance. Yeah. You know, and I'm a non-party guy, so I have to say he did cover yeah. up malfeasance for the Republicans mm-hmm. uh, in particular. But that's just, you know, that's the cap he's wearing, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, when you get that, you know, you get that guy publishing a two-page letter, you know, now going on two weeks ago, um, basically saying, you know, well, there was nothing there. And then he comes back a week and a half later and publishes a four-page letter and says, well, I haven't given any conclusions. And then a few days later, you get people who are on the Mueller team saying, wait a minute, none of this matches what we found. You know, he's, he's, mm-hmm. there's something going on here. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens, you know, with the uh, Senate Republicans and uh, Barr. Because mm-hmm. from what I understand, a few of them are grumbling. Uh, I don't know if it's Grassley alone or which ones are, you know, going to be the loudest. But, uh, you, know, so, you know, Senator Cornyn and some of these people that are on the Judiciary Committee who pre-approved him before he got his confirmation – they have some explaining to do about, you know, uh, why is Barr in there fogging this case? I, I think if we didn't have the obstruction of justice, and by the way, this is why obstruction of justice is so important as a mm-hmm. case. Uh, do you remember Patrick Fitzgerald and the Scooter Libby case? I do. I do. Do you remember what he said about when he came up there and read his his uh, big uh, attack on uh, Libby? He says, this was the equivalent of throwing sand in the referee's face. Remember that line? <laughs> uh, now I do. Now that you reminded me. Yeah. Right. And, and I'll, I, that came into my brain whenever these, uh, this letter was coming down and, and that you know, the president had not been let off the hook about uh, you know, the obstruction of justice. Because what Fitzgerald was saying back in that case was we might have been able to build a case against you know, Richard B. Cheney outing the CIA agent. But the problem is is that he sends this flack of his, Scooter Libby, in to essentially throw sand in the face of the referee, keeping us from really coming together on a solid case uh, against the vice president of the United States and others, right? Right. So it, it wasn't really about Scooter Libby. He was the guy who basically walked up and blinded the ref. Exactly. Maybe when you're in, unlike civil, uh, civil court where you can go 50 plus one, in criminal court, you have to have overwhelming evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, is the key phrase we're all familiar with, that you have a crime. Well, from what we can tell, even in the letter from Barr, you know, he hadn't exonerated Trump, which means once we see that, I think we're going to solidly mm. see that the, the only thing Mueller was saying is, I couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that we had obstruction of justice, which is part of why obstruction of justice becomes such an important charge. Uh, if, you, if you don't go up and... and you know, bear witness to the truth while you're doing it. Uh, it's hard to tell what the case is because let's say you get a guy on the stand like Roger Stone who keeps lying. Mm-hmm. You get a guy like uh, Michael Flynn who keeps lying or Paul Manafort who claimed to be cooperating with the prosecutors. And then all of a sudden in the middle is basically just told, you know, you're, you're nothing but, you know, a lying scumbag who can't tell the truth, you know, and, um, you know, uh, Judge Jackson, you know, called him out and, mm-hmm. and, it's like if you can't get these guys to tell the truth, then that means everything you put them on the stand to say in the final process is now going to be suspect. And I think that that was sort of the mission all along. You got Michael Flynn lying. You got George Papadopoulos lying. You got Paul Manafort lying. All these people are busted for lying. And it wasn't because they weren't doing something else. If you look at the indictments, they go over what they were doing in the background, but ultimately they were lying to the investigators. And that Why? seems to be. Yeah. Go ahead. 
And that's, yeah, that's the key question. I know that we, again, this maybe is a legal thing, but so you have more lies than in like almost the history of mankind yet. (laughs) These guys are, so is it this, that's, that's what's so perplexing is why he did not choose to, uh, you know, indict or I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just something I just don't know the answer to. Well, I will wait to see what the process, what, yeah. uh, you know, if there's anything that it says, you know, like some people were rumoring that, you know, they felt this report ultimately was going to go to Congress, not ultimately mm-hmm. end up, uh, handle up to uh, William Barr. Uh, I don't know that. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what what is revealed to the public. But if if he left some of that information on the table as it's being reported so far, um, it'd be very interesting to see what the, the final results are, because. As I'm saying, you know, if I'm walking around with over a thousand pages of just the indictments so far and the guilty pleas that go with them, uh, inside of those indictments is plenty of evidence. Uh, and, you know, people for the last couple of years have been saying this about Mueller's uh, work is that he's you know, what do they call it, a, a speaking indictment. In other mm-hmm. words, every time he puts something in there, he was telling you a story. So let's use the case of the GRU guys, uh, the, you know, when he indicted the 12 GRU guys and the indictment against Roger Stone. Okay, If you take those two indictments and put them together, you get a very, very intimate story about who was doing what on each side that basically put that information into the American sphere. Right? You have the GRU guys who are in, uh, I forget the unit, uh, 26165, which are the guys who hack all the information. And then you get unit uh, 24455 of the GRU disseminating the information through Guccifer, through DC Leaks, and eventually passing a big trove of it over to uh, WikiLeaks. You get Aaron Nevins, a, a, a young operative in Florida who's a, you know, a uh, Republican, you know, kind of a party type of guy who goes up and gets the information. And he immediately, let's use him as an example. When he finally figures out what's going on, he goes to the authorities and he testifies, hey, I didn't know this, but Guccifer too was apparently Russians and I wasn't trying to do anything wrong. And he totally fessed up and he's not in trouble now, right? Amazing. That's important. Imagine if we did that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Whereas by contrast, Roger Stone engages in a very elaborate lying fest. He lies to the investigators. That's why he's in trouble. Uh, he, he tries to shake down Randy Credico. He tries to... Uh, uh, <laughs> threaten his threat- dog. Threaten his dog. I mean, who on, threatens man. the dog, you know? Um, then he, uh, you know, he tries to work out a deal with Jerome Corsi about what the testimony is going to be. If you compare his behavior to that of Aaron Nevins, the young Florida Republican who did want to know that information, um, that's where you can start seeing the guilty behavior or the, you know, the active mens rea, the guilty mind, right? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think we can use this young man's uh, example, Aaron Nevins, as what sh- should have happened. It's not unreasonable. I mean, I'm sort of like this when I, see a, when I hear a report hit the surface. I've been following WikiLeaks since 2006. I'm not okay. new to WikiLeaks at all. So yeah, I want to read that. You know, I, If you put up WikiLeaks it- right now, I want to read what they have. Um, but the question is, am I going to use it unqualified as a weapon against my opponent? Or am I going to, after being publicly warned that they are uh, peddling stolen documents from this one organization, stolen by the Russians to use mm-hmm. against the opponent, am I, am I going to report it as um, you know, news-oriented items? Or am I going to feed into the feeding frenzy? Let me insert one more thing. and Let me pass the bat back to you. Let sure. me insert one thing, though. 
I think Trump was actually on to something about the media. And uh, you, have to, you have to give them you know, the nefarious credit for knowing how the news media was going to behave. Because once those leaks started coming out, you know, my boss Malcolm went on TV and said, be very careful about what you read. You don't know if it's even true. Mm. And he's, he's saying that from experience of dealing with how the Russians operate in active measures. You know, mm. it might be 96% true. And that 4% matters. It might be 99% true, and that 1% matters. But somewhere in there is the nefarious effort to make you think something that isn't true. But did CNN report any of those Podesta leaks back with any kind of uh, objective look at like, hey, should we even be reporting on these stolen materials? No. No. They went right at it. No. And they They never stepped back and said, wait, we've read this over, and really, there's nothing to this. It's his mom's cooking recipe, for Christ's sakes. Right, it's his mom's really? cooking recipe. And, and, and they were, in many ways, as complicit as the people in the Trump campaign. I think that that part alone has part of the, uh, is part of the equation of why we're not seeing more rapid indictments and we're, why we're not seeing a screaming press that, um, uh, that would be holding these guys accountable. Because in a way, they were complicit in the action by not being more guarded at what they were being used for. They were, they too were the useful idiots. And we see that again here with, with the William Barler. They too ran around. I have French pages. I, I collected front pages all that day. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sitting here with, uh, with my friend, uh, Marina Gibbs, who's a researcher, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, she works with a uh, team that I have. Um, and, you know, she gathered up the no collusion things from USA today and some others and brought them, onto the table and said, look at this, you know, how quickly they fell for it. I only saw, you're absolutely right. And I only saw one paper that did it right. I think it was the Seattle times and it said something, blah, blah, blah says bar. That was the key word, right. the bar letter. Right. And if you had done it that way, you're still doing good journalism. Exactly. Everyone else went up, oh, no collusion. And then you have these, these fake journalists, you know, and I'm going to call them fake journalists on purpose because I'm sure. sort of worn out on their game. You know, Matt Taibbi made a good name for himself in the Occupy Wall Street era, calling out Wall Street. Good job. All right, fine. It's sort of like Absolutely. Cy Hirsch. Cy Hirsch, you know, ran a good job with the My Lai Massacre. Great. But they've, they've developed a certain cynicism about, uh, you know, reporting that's affected their ability to tell the truth now. And in the last several weeks, I've been tracking stories where some of these, you know, faux lefty progressives have been running around <laughs> saying, Oh, well, look, you know, the whole thing's a scam and all these people who were talking about it, like Malcolm Nance, were just completely wrong. And, oh, and but they're still going for it. And it's like, but wait a minute, you don't have a conclusion in your hand. Yeah. You don't have a report in your hand. Why did you fall for this? Glenn Greenwald. Glenn, right. Glenn Greenwald. Exactly. Oh, this is this generation's WMD. Well, if this is this generation's WMD, then you just fell for the equivalent of the Colin Powell presentation before the UN with the William Barr letter. Because it's almost no different as a metaphor than what Colin Powell did, and you know, God bless Mr. You know, General Powell. I'm sure mm-hmm. maybe he, maybe he. You know, I sort of give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he believed what he said before the UN. But when re- reporters back there in 2002 were reporting that, oh, there was WMD, and uh, we know that from these, re- you know, these reports in the government, and then mm-hmm. several years later they're like, oh God, how did they lie to us? Well, we're seeing this all over again with Barr, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to say, you brought up WikiLeaks before. So you, Chris, just to let our audience know, you're the lead researcher on Malcolm Nance's uh, The Plot to Hack America, correct? Yes, I was. Uh, so you've been following this stuff for the hack for way before anybody else. 
Right. Uh, you want the quick backstory? I'll see yes, if I can sir. Keep, it con- keep it concise. Okay. Oh, we, we'd love it. So uh, I started working with Malcolm over a decade ago. Um, and my background before getting into studying terrorism, um, actively, I should say, uh, had a lot more to do with computers and uh, what's on the Internet and, you know, following that flow. Um, I called him up, I don't know, 2009, 2010, and told him about how I yanked down a a jihadist website and i just thought it was kind of cool in a way because i knew that's malcolm's specialty right um and you know little by little i became more of a guy who could find things so chris i'm I'm sorry to interrupt but i I got the comedian in me has to ask you cold called malcolm ness yeah well no i'd already (laughs) known him i did an interview with him on torture right but we we were i wasn't i wasn't you know, all, I wasn't like his lead researcher like I am. Now, okay, right? so, sorry to interrupt you. So he would be the one guy being so thrilled that, you know, hey, I, you know, I, I called, I, I wrote to this company in Malaysia and found this this uh, website and, you know, notified them. And uh, could you please, you know, take this down? You probably don't know it. And I got a letter back and I sent it to Malcolm. Oh, cool. And um, the whims changed at that point. We began to work closer and closer. Um, then in 2013, he was rewriting uh updating his book the terrorist of iraq for the second edition and he asked if i could start working on the fighter counts of these different terrorist groups in iraq this is before isis had burned burst back on the scene right or burst on the scene Mm -hmm. and um i said sure and he said well will you do the media work you know tell me about how they're putting their clips online and where they're located online sure no problem and that led into defeating isis the book uh the main you know really great encyclopedia he did after that and we had this research material left over about their hackers and their media guys that didn't quite wind up in that book that ultimately wound up being in the book Hacking ISIS. As we were writing Hacking ISIS, there were reports uh, about Russian hackers pretending to be the cyber caliphate. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was buzzing around with some of my friends on uh, Twitter who were discussing in the background. And I was aware of, uh, and I hate, you had to forgive me, I hate this word, false flag. It's mm. so abused. It's so abused by uh, I know. the yeah. Alex Jones crowd. But yeah. that's what it was. It was a false flag. There were there were at least two uh, operations: the attack on the French TV station TV Sankt and the uh, the Bundestag, you know, the German Parliament. That, from our point of view, studying what the hackers were doing for ISIS, were a major escalation in their skill set. And that would be alarming if you were taking it serious as an ISIS operation, right? Until you start realizing that if their ISIS hacker guys are still excited about overturning the front page of an Indian jeweler and saying, go caliphate, you know, why would they be doing that still if they're capable of burning out an entire TV station? Mm. It made no sense, right? And then Malcolm calls me up, and I'll never forget this call as long as I, you know, one day when I'm really, really old and I'm halfway there, Um, I'll never forget this conversation where Malcolm called me up and said, we need to interrupt, uh, the hacking ISIS book. And I had all these interviews planned that I had been telling him about, you know, I'm going to call this expert and that person, it's going to be so cool. The book's going to be so robust. And he says, that's good. But right now I need you to look at the DNC hacking report. Now for me, I call that my old job because I've been working with, uh, with, uh, server companies for, you know, several years for Mm -hmm. now over, over two decades. And it's like what I consider my boring work, you know, like, oh, people are trying to get in service. Oh, okay. Okay. No big deal. And I understood the difference between state hackers 
and the more common criminal or nefarious, you know, mischief hackers. I was more actually honest. I was more familiar with the mis- mischievous crowd, you know, the the people who aren't under the state umbrella. And I never really thought I would be paying attention to what the state hackers did. You know, to me that was like um, the Sony hack, if you remember over mm-hmm. the the movie, the interview. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of knew what they did. Just because I constantly read white papers, you know, uh, for those who don't know what white papers are in the cyber industry, these are reports that are put out about different hacking activities and what this very competitive field uh, tracks on a regular basis, right? So Malcolm says, hey, I just need you to look over this and I need you to tell me what you find. You know, the report claims it's Russians. Can you affirm that? And I said, "Uh, yeah, fine. No problem. You know, um, I didn't know why. I'll be honest with you. That's the thing I still kind of find most interesting about my angle in this i didn't understand why we we were doing this what's Mm. the angle what's the point you know Mm. uh and about a day later he says i will tell you the point you know malcolm has this kind of gregarious way of presenting (laughs) (laughs) bad bad news i've seen that he's the king of bad news but uh he has this kind of gregarious way of doing i will tell you yeah. You know, I'll call you in a little bit. He told me to go. Uh, he asked if I still had my KGB books. Uh, I have some spy books that I keep around for years. Mm. I said, sure, sure. No problem. He said, well, go get this one book. And, you know, I, I went and got it off the shelf and he told me what page to turn to. And he starts talking about active measures mm-hmm. and, and disinformation campaigns. And I'm like, why are we talking about this, though? What do you what do you mean? You know, he says, well, you know, there's going to be a document dump. Okay. And they're going to start doing this, and they're going to, you know, basically start, you know, uh, you know, insinuating something about this crowd. And he didn't know what was found because none of us knew what had been hijacked from the DNC, right? We didn't mm-hmm. even know that Podesta had been hacked per se. We just understood that this report affirmed this, 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 uh, what is this spidey sense he had, right? He's right. got that master the, spy. The, the, spy Ma- the Malcolm sense. sense. The Malcolm sense, right? The Nance sense. With the Nansen's, the Nance nerves. You pick, you pick. And I, um, so my job at that point was simply to affirm whether or not this was legit. And to be Mm. honest with you, I still, when I read the GRU indictment from Mueller, I'm stunned how close we got it without having any insight to what these people were doing. We just used the open source information from over a decade worth of APT 28, APT 29 histories written by not, you know, CrowdStrike was like the least of them. So when people attack CrowdStrike, well, they were employed by DNC, you can't believe them. Yeah, but Trend Micro isn't. Uh, you know, Microsoft isn't. Um, mm. So all of these companies have been writing their own various papers. F-Secure, I remember, uh, uh, you know, Mandiant FireEye. All these companies had the reports on essentially who this group was, but they all, all had different terms for what they were doing. Mm. But what was consistent was the target. And Malcolm says the target is the tactic. Uh, in other words, who you're attacking says everything. You know, why would a common hacker want to attack, say, a specific military office in, you know, Estonia? Mm-hmm. Why? You know, for shits and giggles, you know, maybe. Okay. Uh, but not really. It's kind of a boring pursuit for most hackers. You know, you you get more out of it by stealing credit cards or right. stealing access to websites, right? So why would they want to go after this this one particular agency, or why would they attack this particular target? So, so I did I did the part to affirm whether this could be Russians. Great. Then I had to go through a phase for a few weeks to decide could anyone else have done this for some reason? You know, let's say it was the Chinese trying to make us think it's the Russians. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's test that theory. And 
none of that made any sense once I, you know, did the effort plus the overlapping domain names and IPs. Well, that didn't make any sense, you know. Is it possible? Yeah, but not over 10 years' time. It, it's just, it, that's, now we're getting further and further out from what's reasonable. Okay, well, let me, let me get domestic. Could, the, could our TAO crew do it? And they're really sophisticated, very accomplished hackers as well. Uh, yeah, but again, you're talking about a 10-year record that now makes no sense. And, it, and what it also does is it alleviates this foreign entity, in this case the Russians, of any responsibility for what they're doing. Like, you know, it's like they didn't do anything then, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, it's always the, it's always our guys. It's always the Chinese. It's always, you know. So again, none of these things quite added up. So I said, the only thing I can see, it's just Russians. And we passed that research on to a group of high-skilled hacker experts that uh, I, I kind of knew a few of them from the field, but I'd never met them. And frankly, I was, I was really flattered when, scared shitless i sent them the report like yeah uh, okay this is either gonna be a really bad report that i think is right or i did an okay job and they came back and said solid man and now i feel very affirmed when i get to read the gru indictments and they lay out precisely who did what what and how uh which is breathtaking by the way now i never worked in the nsa Mm. but i can tell you uh my my judge of it is that you know, the intricacy of that indictment against the GRU hackers is a combination of inside job. In other words, some, some GRU guy or, you know, FSB guy who uh, snitched on that end, mixed with the signals intelligence available from the NSA. That's because right. that's really the only way we can understand that on this date, Levashov went to this computer, logged in, did the following, bought this. And then, you know, this uh, GRU agent did this. And on this date, they did ran a query for these terms. And on this, it's very, very intricate. It's amazing. And a lot of the history of uh, indictments against hackers, this is the most elaborate and detailed I think I have ever read from the government. And the Dutch, uh, I read, hacked the security camera right outside and gave that to us. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's one of the other things is we have the allies, you know. Right. Now let's let's talk about that for half a second. So the, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So the allies have a vested interest in us, just like we have a vested interest in them. And we actually did this for the Russians. If you remember, there was a bombing in St. Petersburg a couple of years ago, and our people basically gave them the information to help them track the uh, the attackers. Because while we're all at this little proxy war state with each other, we also have common enemies that want to blow things up. And I think it's good uh, worldcraft, you know, to uh, to, to tell each other, hey, you know, look, we may have this opposition with each other, but these are the guys to just try to kill your people. Mm. Or if it's the Brits and the you know, and the Dutch, as you just mentioned, who are trying to tell us, hey, like, you may not realize this, but we're watching this hack go against you too. And your president knows damn well what he did. So, you know, Brit- the Brits are watching uh, alongside them, the, the Germans. That's the beauty mm. of the five eyes yeah. uh, intelligence system is that, you know, when one is under attack and you can't quite see it through the fog, you have the other ones watching over you. So that was right. a good point. I'm glad you brought up the Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I heard initially that they, they were handing that over. And the F, what I mean, what I read was that they, they kind of got a, a lukewarm response uh, uh, before Mueller and all that. Uh, right. Well, I'm not surprised. Um, I, I think there's there has to be a point at which when you're in the middle of the fog of war, uh, cyber war in this case. You know, it's hard to tell what you're seeing. I know that as we look back, we can see things with much more clarity. Uh, Imagine being in a situation where you're not sure what to do. Um, 
Cyber War is a really very hard thing for most people to understand because you don't feel it. Uh, it's happening around you, but you don't really feel it. It's not the same thing as kinetic warfare, right? Yeah. Um, and as a lot of my friends who are former military can tell you, uh, retaliation is a very hard task to deploy because you don't know what you're striking when you're doing it via cyber. You, you say, well, okay, I have this computer over here, and you can try to study the thing all day long, but is it, is it a computer that's being used in a hospital? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it grandma's heart monitor in, in some part that has nothing to do with this? You don't, you don't always know what you're running into when you're reaching through the nerves of the Internet to try to get to another computer that's attacking you, and you prepare to brick it. You know, essentially, uh, you know, freeze it up if you don't know what bricket means. You know, bricket is uh, yeah. is one of the, one of the techniques. You can just basically freeze that sucker. But did you just freeze someone's you know life support system? Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's great. Um, what I, what I was going to ask you was, as a a cyber analyst, cyber terrorism analyst, I was just wondering if you could take us through the day to day of what exactly you what what do you do. Uh, <laughs> my days seem to be blending all over the time i have i have days where i'll give you an example uh the pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting yeah. uh the night before i had been running reports actually i don't remember what i did the night before i know i've yeah. been doing reports that had nothing to do with the synagogue shooting mm. and i wrapped them up and i get a text message the next morning from malcolm what are the nazis saying oh and i wrote back uh okay um, hey, I put those reports in, and he just, in all caps, screamed at me. What are the Nazis saying? <laughs> and I went, why is he saying this? And I got right. up and I turned on the TV. And we got mass shooting in, in, uh, in um, you know, uh, Pittsburgh at the uh, Tree of Life Synagogue. Yeah. So what does that turn me into doing? I have to suddenly go into Gab and various uh, like Discord server and Steam and start seeing who's saying what where about that attack. Then I have to figure out. Who are this guy's allies? Okay, uh, where are they located at? I, I start building a profile, and I have a team that doesn't officially work for Tapestry at all, but sure. there's still various experts uh, that are paying attention to you know very specific sectors. Some of them are tracking neo-Nazis, some of them are tracking ISIS guys, some of them are tracking disinformation guys, mm-hmm. some of them are tracking other hackers. And I go to those people and say, okay, look, you know, based on the crisis moment. Uh, we need to know everything we can about Robert Bowers, okay? Not just Robert Bowers. I want to know who's following him. I want to know who is he interacting with. Give me every profile on those people. Oh, give me every profile of the people following those people. Um, and we start building a footprint, right? So I'll use ISIS as the best example because we're now several years past that. When ISIS first burst on scene and started putting up videos, uh, it's easy to get caught up in the videos. Uh, we call that the shiny thing. You know, everything's about the shiny <laughs> thing. Yeah. Uh, so the videos are the shiny thing. Okay, well, who's posting that? Where are they located? Okay, uh, is there like an echo chamber that, or like the proliferation group? And then behind that, is there the core creation group? Same thing with the, uh, the, uh, the uh, neo-Nazi guys. There are the people who are just echoing what they find, and then there are people who are creating what they find, right? I look at a combination of what they're actually publishing, where they're publishing it, but I'm trying to get further and further to the nerve center of where they're hiding, Mm-hmm. because the, the fact that you see it on Twitter is surface level, okay? Now that's way past the creation stage. Let's go further in. I want to find out who is the core creator behind that dissemination of that channel. Same thing when it comes to cyber. Let's talk about uh, what's the other thing I do. I, I, I have to look at the 
plausibility of certain activity. For instance, in the case of the DNC hacking, not just the DNC hacking. How? Um, I'll give you. Let me give you one example out of the sure. case. Do you remember the guy that was, uh, he ran a, a company called King Servers. He was a Russian guy who says, oh, the FBI has never, never contacted me, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they say my server was in the middle of this and it became the whole, where's the server meme, right? Because there was this one server used uh, as a, what we call a C2 server or a command and control server, which is where you, you put software on it to attack other servers and you offload data onto it to take and put elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and people said, well, you know, the FBI never contacted him to get the servers. Well, guess what? The FBI doesn't have to contact him. All they got to know is where that server is. And they will yeah. get in and they will take all the data off of that server. And they yeah. will do it real time. And they will run a live a- analysis on it. My job is to understand the technology behind how they did it. And to start writing down everything from IP addresses used for that. And keep a running log. So that later in time. As we're doing other reports, we can come back and, hey, do you have anything on that particular case? Sure. And I have to go you know, scrambling through our database and go, okay, yeah, okay, here we go. On this date, that was that IP, and here's the domain name, and here's when we you know, caught it registered at this time. And we're constantly taking screenshots of every possible thinking pattern you can, you can drum up. Sure. Um, the other thing is I, I gather white papers from all the industries on a regular basis and I put them in catalogs and I, you know, I have to know on a moment's notice what that is. And last, here's, here's the, it's not really the cool side of the job, but it's kind of the, you know, it's, it's as I get older and write memoirs one day, one day, you know, about whatever I got to do with Malcolm. Um, the niece attack, let's use that as an example. Malcolm mm-hmm. is called immediately onto television to do a, uh, a read-by for MSNBC. And I get this phone call. I need to know all the vehicle on pedestrian tax in Israel uh, You know, for the last, uh, well, just give me all of them, every one of them. I'm like, uh, okay, okay, hurry up. I got 25 minutes. Okay, um, calls me back like five minutes later. Well, what do you have? I, 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 I've got uh, 17, uh, is it 17 or 20? I, I don't, hold on, let me, give me five more minutes. You don't have five, okay. Call me back in five minutes. Bye. And I'm literally going through yeah. a database that I keep along with databases I'm I'm watching on other uh, servers um, that uh, like Stanford University and others have these big elaborate databases. And I'm crunching the numbers as he's literally driving to the station to give the briefing. And he's got five minutes left. What's the number? I got 25. He goes, good. Bye. Gets on TV. He goes, well, we've had 25 attacks. You know, the, and <laughs> all, very the, calm. all the glory. Right, which is fine. He could take all the glory. I'm I'm cool with that. But I have to get that number solid so that when he goes on television, the thing he knows to report about is accurate down to the number. So yeah, yeah, and I'm you know I'm really glad you brought up the tree of life. The reason is is that you're an expert in. uh, I know you and Malcolm cover a lot of of terrorism and uh, ISIS and things that take place in far corners of the world, but. Isn't it a fact that the most dangerous extremism is domestic terrorism in our country? In fact, it is. I think Malcolm made a good point. We were briefing the New York State Police together, and it was an honor to kind of be in the wings with him doing his thing and teaching these guys of what to look for. And um, he pointed out which guy, when they get out of that car, who, what, which is the suspect you're going to be most, most terrified of because of what they've been doing? And he pointed out that the Sovereign Citizens Movement has been one that just can easily put the fear yep. into any officer because you just don't know what they're going to do. Right. 
Um, I remind a lot of people, your chances of you running into an ISIS attacker, I mean, you're going to be struck by lightning 15 times before you run into an ISIS, uh, ISIS attacker. You're going to be eaten by seven sharks right. uh, before you run into an ISIS attacker. Um, but I, I did this, I put this up on Twitter a few weeks ago after the, um, the last uh, mass shooting, the one in uh, New Zealand when people were talking about, you know, it, but it's the Muslims that are the problem. Uh-huh. I'm going to tell you flat out, if I really thought that Muslims were just the statistical problem, I would tell you so. I have no loyalty to any religion, any group of people to not tell the truth about them. Right. The data does not show that. And I'm a data guy. I, I have to check my own facts and my own beliefs on a regular basis. Oh, crime is up. Okay, well, that's funny. The statistics say crime's down. Um, you know, this, this uh, issue, uh, what was, there was one, another one that someone was telling me about. Oh, we were talking about alligator attacks because, you know, I, I've been going through Florida. And I'm like, oh. really? You know, you actually have more kids who kill adults than alligators. Huh. You have vending machines fall on people more often than alligators attack anybody. Yeah. You know, and so I'd go by the numbers, right? And the numbers clearly show that we have a massive um, problem with extreme right wing uh, neo-Nazi level, but not always just straight up neo-Nazi, but much like we saw with the Anders Breivik and uh, the attacker in New Zealand. Um, this, this group that is running around with, you know, white identity politics as their base, right? This fear that they're being eliminated from the, uh, the, the social sphere, right? Mm. At the time when I was doing a briefing for Canadian TV about the New Zealand attacker, I did not know yet, but we've learned eventually, he had been well-funded by groups that were operating out of Eastern Europe. He had now I had already heard he'd been going over there, but I couldn't I couldn't substantiate that, so I didn't mention it on TV yet because I hear things all the time. Um, and now we know he had not only been going over there and learning you know to uh, increase his ideology, but he had been part of a well-funded campaign to uh, promote this ideology, right? And um, we're going to have to keep an eye on that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, news broke this week that one of the groups, one of the departments in the uh, Homeland Security Division that was doing this has been completely broken off. I saw um, that. Catherine Gorka. Catherine Gorka. And, yeah. and that the real threat is Antifa. Yeah. That the of real course. threat are the, uh, the Antifa uh, crowd. And, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with Antifa. Antifa reminds me of all the protesters that I used to kind of keep an eye on when I would go to protest and mm. I'd, I'd kind of walk to the crowd and, you know, I respect freedom of speech heavily on all sides, including counter protesters that are, sure. you know, pro Trump or whatever else. I, I I'm glad that they're out there too. But then there's that 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 shit starter, you know, the one who's just there for a fight. Right. And and that's what I described some of the Antifa crowd. Not all mm-hmm. of it. I don't know the percentage, but there's some of it that's out yeah. there looking for a fight with a you right. know, wants to punch a Nazi in the face and be Captain America. Got it. But that's really, it's so uh, catastrophically insane that Catherine Gorka or anyone else would go up and say that they're actually the threat. Because my challenge to them would be, show me one man, one uh, mass shooting massacre done by one of those guys. Because right. I can show you a dozen done by the other guys. You know, in the last one year alone. In the last year alone, right. And uh, the one anomaly is we still don't know the motivation behind um, Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas. So we, yeah. we have to omit him. Uh, because we don't know his motivation, but Nicholas Cruz, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the bombing campaign of uh, Caesar Sayak, which was luckily, you know, no injuries, but uh, 
you know, we got Caesar Sayak. We have um, Dylan Roof is a hero to a lot of these guys, right? Yeah. Um, there are there you know, the Robert Bowers, you know, yeah. uh, is a great example. And um, and then we have you know, of course the the uh, shooting in New Zealand, which was, you know, the guy was very obsessed with American politics. Mm. You know, he wasn't talking about New Zealand politics. He wasn't talking about Aussie politics. He was obsessed with Donald Trump politics. You know, and he was obsessed yeah. with the same movement that says essentially that white folks are going to be eliminated and that we have to stand up for our own. Um, that fear is going to kill more people still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it got us. That's what got us this uh, basically this president on another level. Right. Uh, right. I mean, that fear, even if it was unconscious in some of those people, which I don't really understand. I like I look at I'm. What the only thing I've ever identified as is like I think of myself as an American. I, I, right. the right. the demographics are changing. The in the in the future, people aren't going to look like you and I, and who cares? It's people, right? Right. I mean, well, you know, I I happen to be one of the family genealogists, and and I'm very fascinated with who I come from when it comes to mm-hmm. my people. And I, I've been saying this for years. There really are no white people, and that's one of the big myths mm-hmm. that that kind of generates this issue is that. When the basis of my identity is my skin color, but not my actual uh, ancestry, I have uh, I, I get confused by that argument because, um, you know, I, I don't really have something overly in common with, say, Italians in my particular bloodline. Doesn't mean I don't like Italians or whatever else. I don't have anything particularly in common with Danish people. I don't come from Danish people. Right. But my skin looks like them. Therefore, we have some sort of common something. I don't, I don't really relate to what this, you know, desire to save white people mm. is really all about. Now, but let me put my counter-extremist hat on. Okay, so I've been studying a lot for the last several years since I started working with Malcolm. Not just counterterrorism, which means how to stop people from committing terrorism, how to thwart their tactics, how to find them, out them, etc. But the counter-extremism effort is really about understanding what motivates it, all right? And the sense of... Um, looking at the recruiting methods, for instance, the recruiting methods of uh, Nazi groups, gangs, and ISIS are almost identical. Mm. Uh, you have really? people who are not socially acclimated or socially successful, and they're given a community, a sense of belonging, and then a sense of purpose, and then a directive, and mm. then a target. Wow. And the models match, whether it's ISIS, oh, you want to be a good Muslim? Well, you got to be with us. Well, here's how you prove you're a good Muslim. Well, go kill that guy. You go kill the kufr. You go kill the the uh, mushrikeen. You know the the people who uh, commit uh, you know apostasy. You know uh, you know the shirk uh, is in, in Islam. Shirk is is uh, basically um, you know engaging in saint worship. For instance, mm-hmm. this is why Sunnis and Shia have combat. You know. So same thing with the the Nazi guys. You know, the Nazi guys are they hate any uh, white person who will side up with any non-white person, and they're they're actually in some ways considered more evil to the Nazi point of view than the Jews or or black people, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're the race traders. By the way, I'm head race trader. I'm way up on the list of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna right. just tell you flat out. So you know, uh, you know, the neo Nazis have actually targeted me. I got, I don't know if you heard this story, but. Uh, I got uh, a phone call from ProPublica that my information was on Daily Stormer. You're kidding me. And I, and I was like, really? Okay. 
And uh, wow. uh, this guy, Ken from Daily Storm, I mean, from, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, kid. This guy, Ken from ProPublica, is explaining how he found these posts with my name in it and my phone number. I went, wow, wow. that's fascinating. Did they, uh, did they put the counterterrorist part next to my bio? He goes, yeah. nope. Okay, do you know who I am? He goes, no. I said, do you know who Malcolm Nance is? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, well, I work with Malcolm, and I I track ISIS and neo-Nazis, you know, full-time. So so what you got? You know, and I was all, all excited, like, wow. ooh, here we go. He goes, are you afraid? I go, nah, no, nah, I'm not really afraid. It's not, you know, I don't have time for that. Of course. Um, but pass me the post. I'll be interested to read. And, uh, you know, it's um, it's a very bizarre world uh, to pay attention to these guys. Uh, that's, let me, that's let me a include, badge of honor. Oh, good. Well, yeah, in a way, yeah. Let me include one group that's, I, I, I think, very different. Uh, if, if, if you heard of Adam Waffen. Yes. Okay, so uh, for the listeners and, the, and those who haven't paid attention to who Adam Waffen is, um, you have a lot of people who are extreme racists, but I don't think that they're interested in blowing up a power grid or poison a water supply. And then you have a group like Adam Waffen. You know, Adam Waffen is German for a, atomic weapon. And they want to wreak havoc on all of society to basically promote a chaos uh, in which, you know, the big race war will come. And they're, they're you know, thankfully very small in numbers um, and in many ways not very educated and not very skilled. But it doesn't take long for them to get some members like they've had a couple of members that you know, were very well um written about in ProPublica, God bless them, uh, did a really great job. AJ, uh, AJ Thompson did a whole special that was on Frontline mm-hmm. uh, talking about a Marine who had joined Adam Waffen. So although they're in small numbers, they're highly deadly, and they're different than the kind of Nazis you saw over at Charlottesville right. who, who go out in the public square and you know, rant and say crazy stuff and then go home. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, as, as we kind of joke, you know, uh, they'd be Naziing, you know? Uh, so that's awesome so part of our job is to keep an eye on what makes these groups different and the way i describe it is like there's al-qaeda and then there's isis Mm. al-qaeda 2.0 right and then there's nazis and then there's adam waffen you know nazis 2.0 um these are very serious folks and if you ever if you know if any of the listeners ever run into someone who's doing that in their family or their friend circle or some co-worker um First off, always call law enforcement because we're not law enforcement. We're analysts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, don't hesitate to let us know about it because we're, we're very interested in seeing what's happening there. And we do get some very strange emails once in a while. You know, my cousin's doing this and I don't know what to do. I, I have a, a, a cousin or my brother or someone I know in my family who's, who's doing something really crazy. You know, what do you think? And we go watch their YouTube clips and we go, well, I think they're just blowing off steam. Yeah, yeah Chris. But, uh, can you- yeah. Since you brought it up, can you tell uh, people how, how do they contact Tapestry Media and you with any uh, leads, tips, whatever? Well, uh, the ter- uh, see the, so the website is um, – uh, hell, I can't remember our website. I'm tired. Oh, um, yeah, no worries. <laughs> the, tactics, the Tactics of Terror.org or on Twitter, you can catch Malcolm Nance at, at Malcolm Nance. But I'm at Tapestry Media, which is spelled T-A-P-S-T-R-I. Media, M-E-D-I-A. And uh, again, the uh, tapestry is an acronym Malcolm came up with years ago. The Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategies, Tactics, Radical Ideology. So T-A-P-S-D-R-I. And, uh, you know, I, I pay attention to what people send. Might not always be able to respond because I tend to get a lot of information that we have to uh, 
keep an eye on and uh, we track and, you know, I'm by the numbers. So a lot of times I get information and I start putting trackers on it and I keep an eye and, you know, there's a lot of craziness on the, on the uh, internet. Um, I learned a term recently that I had, I think it's important to, to relay this term real quick. Mm-hmm. We were talking about uh, Adam Waffen and uh, someone referred to one of the head guys that was caught who's trying to claim, Oh, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just, I'm an edge Lord. And I went, edge lord. Wow, what's an edge lord? Wow. And immediately I knew what it meant, but I had to digest that term. Like someone who goes on the web and just is just edgy, right? And uh, but isn't really meaning it. And they're like, oh, kill the Jews and wow. you know, destroy the, you know, like, and but they don't mean it is what he's saying. And I thought, oh, no, I, that's I feel much better now. It, yeah. it, it's important to understand that there are some people who are really getting off on being edgy. And the moment you pull that, that, um, you know curtain back there you know uh are you familiar with the term larping you know uh, live action role play i've heard that yeah right so live action role play so they're pretending to be extremists right they're pretending to be extreme neo-nazi racist uh uh guys on the internet and they don't really mean it well that's great okay maybe that there is someone out there the problem at hand is next to them is someone who takes it as real and they get caught up in it and they go attack people that's an interesting defense. That also sounds like the defense of every person who ever did anything wrong. You know, I didn't, I maybe, right. maybe what it really is, is that they don't, maybe they don't see themselves as they really are, or they don't want to admit that. Cause, um, uh, you know, as you already know, a normal person doesn't, uh, play neo-Nazi on the weekend. <laughs> right. Um, well, normal people do crazy things when given the wrong information. So uh, one more thing about this. Fair enough. Wrong information, just a little bit of wrong information can tick a person uh, off their normal compass into the wrong direction. And, and I've actually experienced this in life. I've had people come up to me and tell me, hey, so-and-so did this thing you don't like, right? And, and I'm, I, I really, and I get really upset because I only got part of the truth. And based on the truth that I got, or you know, the portion of the truth I got, I got really angry that someone had done something that when I really got the full story, I went back to the person who told me, said, you know, you sort of left out a very key part of that story. Right. <laughs> you had me believing A, and now I find out B is true. Wait a minute. Why did you lie to me? So yeah. I, I have to remember these personal experiences when I go study how extremists get to be extremists. Um, um, little by little, there's that little boy. It's like some people use the boiling frog uh, uh, metaphor, but, Little by little, there's this sort of eroding of the the no factor in our brain, the desensitization of of caring about other people, of caring what they think, and and sort of catching yourself. You know, uh, what's the public? Uh, what's the common metaphor? You know, you're in you're a mom's basement alone. Uh, you've got no social life, and you're just frantically typing at the internet, mm. trying to stop the bad people, whoever the bad people are, right? And uh, I think that, that 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 phenomenon is far more common than we realize. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I just I, I know you're a busy guy, so I just have like two more questions, and then sure, I'll, man. Uh, I I, I want to ask you the the Mueller. Uh, okay. What do you think really happened? Was this a was this a Manchurian candidate, or was this just a what level? How complicit are were these people? Well, okay, so. Again, I try to be as objective as possible, man. It's of really course. great to be angry at Trump and mm-hmm. say, you know, he he willfully did this. 
But having studied a lot about what the KGB methods have been for 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 decades, for for several decades, you know, I, I you know, I'm sitting here. I, I'll see if I can send you a snapshot of my book library that I keep portably with me. I have one oh, cool. in storage and one that's portable. You know, it's 45 books or so uh, written by former KGB guys. Uh, in, in one case, uh, a guy named Trechikov, Sergei Trechikov, wrote a book that was called uh, that's called uh, Comrade J, and they were talking about how. Um, Yuri Andropov, the former KGB head, started encouraging them to be creative, mm. meaning instead of just going out and finding the, the fellow travelers, you know, the leftists who wanted to be Soviets. Okay, so in the beginning, there were that, that was the crowd they were trying to find, right? Let's find the like-minded crowd and get them to work for us, all right? Mm. So there was that layer, right? And as we moved into the 80s with Donald Trump uh, being around and the coming of Glasnost, uh, God bless being, you know, nearly 50, because uh, I, I actually remember the stuff firsthand. I don't have to be a, <laughs> no offense to the millennials. I, I, love, I love you dearly. But I, I remember watching this stuff, and it was part of the, the culture, anyone my age. We watched this transformation happen real time, right? Mm-hmm. So Glasnost comes around, and the Soviets want to start talking to business people, right? People with influence. But that didn't mean they walked up to them and say, hey, will you be a Russian agent for us, please? And Trump, someone like that, would, oh, sure, no problem. No, 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 that's not how it would work. You, you get them uh, to do things uh, thinking it's their own idea. And I think Sardi and I brilliantly parodied this. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, um, uh, Beck. Uh, I, I don't remember all the actors' names on there, but, yeah. you know, he plays Putin. And uh, the Alec Baldwin character says, oh, yeah, and he's like, he thinks it's his idea. He goes, right, it's your idea. <laughs> That's exactly the way you can get someone to do something for you, right. right? So you have Trump, who for, God, over 30 years has wanted a Trump Tower in Moscow. 32 mm-hmm. years this guy has envisioned a Trump Tower in Moscow. But you know how many people have built buildings in Moscow while he's wanting that one? Tons of people who are Americans have built buildings in Moscow yeah. to no big crisis in a veil and some big co-op thing. I mean, I'm sure there was some sort of thing that you'd want to keep an eye on, but I, I know developers who've actually done uh, you know, work in Moscow, built buildings that were of no big consequence, mm-hmm. and no one really talks about them because they actually, partially because they probably just they got it done. But Trump still doesn't have Trump Tower Moscow. Right. And how many times has he been offered this? So in a way, Trump Tower was the first dangle put in front of him. Second... He wanted to solve the nuclear crisis back in the 80s. You know, he was apparently terrified of nuclear war. I think many of us were concerned about it. But in particular, he's the son, uh, not the son of, he's the, he has a, I believe his, what is his uncle? Uncle, who yeah. was Who was a nuclear scientist, right? And so he had this really strong fear of nuclear war, and he thought he was going to be the head negotiator, which is some massive ego to think that you can go up and you're going to just solve this problem that all these diplomats can't solve. Well, you're especially when you're, guy, right? when you're illiterate. You know, You're illiterate, right? <laughs> I mean, so so you got this guy who's going to think he's going to be this great mind who's going to do this, and on the other side, you got these people going, "Look at this idiot!" I I call back to the Carter Page model, right, with the Burikov case, where they went, "This guy wants some, you know, uh, he's going to do some business over here." Great, and one of those spies, I don't know if it was uh, you know, Podobny or, or Burikov, says, "We'll just feed him some documents and tell him some BS and whatever, you know." Because he's an idiot anyway, right? Mm. That tells you the model that they're willing to use. If you come over with all of your ambition and all of your ego, right? And Malcolm uses the uh, 
the acronym MICE, you know, uh, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Um, you know, Trump wanted the money. He, he has, uh, he is compromised by virtue of uh, later down the road when he knew he was doing business with Russia. Uh, and he has this sizable ego, the unbelievable. I can't think of a president we've had that had this kind of ego. And I study a lot of the past presidents. I can't sure. think of one that has such an inflamed ego. Uh, I know more than the generals about ISIS. Come on, man. Um, right. So you got this guy who's uh, wants the money. You know, he's wanted this venture for, for many, many years. He ran out of money. American banks wouldn't uh, work with him. Uh, the, you know, we know that uh, Deutsche Bank was ready to fold on him, right? Sure. And we have his son who says, a lot of our funding comes from the Russians. And then he goes up and says, well, no, I really don't have a lot to do with Russians during the campaign, right? Mm. So there's, there's your compromise, because they know he did. They knew for a fact he did. They had the signed paperwork. You know, I just want to ask you one more thing. Uh, you're, you're, an, you're a cyber analyst. I, yeah. uh, I'm a politically knowledgeable guy. And, and right. how, do the, so how, does, how does the ordinary American fight back against the rise of extremism and of populist fascism that's sweeping the globe? Ah. How do they fight back? Uh, I like what you said a while ago when we were talking about being white, not white, etc. You're an American. I'm an American. You know, I was raised here. I'm from several generations of Americans. Mm. Um, you know, some of which fought for this country and died for this country. My, you know, my grandfather was an artillery guy in World War II, fought the Nazis. You know, mm. so uh, I don't want to be a Nazi. I mean, like, <laughs> Grandpa fought the Nazis. Why the hell would I want to be one of those right. guys? Um, you know, I don't have the coming to Jesus moment where I was once a white supremacist and suddenly I found the way and decided not to be one. No, I've always been who I am. Thank God. And uh, so I've always been against these guys. I think that the thing to do is to catch our own. To, we have to look in the mirror and we mm -hmm. have to catch when we get upset. And, uh, you know, I hear friends that, and, and people I love who are close to me who say, God, I hate whoever it is. Right. And mm -hmm. th that word hate comes out. And I see that word to be a very, very teachable word because hate usually means that that person has power over you, that group or that. That person that you don't like has power over you. They're they're consuming part of your happiness. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing working with Malcolm has taught me doing this counterterrorism work, especially where, trust me, I've seen the worst that humanity can do to each other. I've seen stuff that most people should never see. I, I I'm uh, as Malcolm noted in defeating ISIS. I you know, supposedly this foremost authority in ISIS media. I've seen all the videos wow. pretty much. I stopped watching them a few months ago. I put them in the archive and I don't even I don't even watch them now. Um, there are other analysts that can do that hard work now. <laughs> yeah. I, I go out and I, I respect people. Uh, I like people. I like society. I, I find that, you know, reintegrating on a daily level with just saying hi to people is very important to the work I do. Mm -hmm. Reminding people to go out and, and be themselves. Go enjoy a movie. Take your family out. Uh, call someone you haven't talked to in a while and tell them how much you love them. Act like this, and you will be doing more than most when it comes to kind of restoring the fabric. But most important, and I think this has been something I've had to learn on a repeated basis ever since then. When you run into that Trump supporter that you were getting along with until that topic came up, keep getting along with them the best you possibly can. Just try to listen to what's motivating them. And if you have to change the subject a little bit, fine. But, you know, we ran into this a couple of weeks ago. I was out in... Uh, getting along with this lady at a diner and, you know, all of a sudden Trump comes up. She goes, oh, I love him. And maybe I about choked on the onion ring I was eating. And I, I, so I had another one real quick to 
ponder what I wanted to say to this person because we were getting along until that comment came up. And I told her the truth. I said, I don't like the guy. I mean, you know, he really makes my job hard. And mm-hmm. But I treated her with respect. And in return, she treated me with respect. And we left the restaurant, you know, on our own terms being, and I said, God bless it. We're Americans, right? Okay, God bless America. And, and, I, and that's how I think we have to be. Uh, we, the, the whole model that we saw in 2016 of dividing and conquering is about inflaming our existing fissures. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have cracks in our society. They exploited the democracy that we love. Uh, we don't have a perfect democracy. In fact, we're rated 27th or whatever on the democracy scale with a flawed democracy. Norway is like number one. They have a great democracy, apparently. And I think that when we stop and think about that, we think, well, what is it that makes us who we are? And more importantly, can we be the role model that loves one another and treats each other with respect, even when we disagree, even when they're not doing it? Because what I notice is we're increasingly justifying bad behavior in ourselves because of what the bad behavior in they is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Other did this, therefore I'm allowed now to do this. And that's yeah. the degradation that we have to fight. I think you make a great point. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, yeah, just Chris, I just want to thank you for uh, coming on today and talking oh, about my your honor, work. Man. It's uh, my honor. And uh, I really hope we can, we can do it again soon. Of course. Uh, um, oh, of course. dude. Oh, I almost, oh, yes. I, okay. There is one more thing I need to ask you. What's that? Uh, briefly as you can, because I know you got stuff to do. Can you tell the story about when Malcolm called Malcolm Nance called you and said, I need you to fly over to the BBC? Because <laughs> I <laughs> you, you mean the uh, the the invite. The invite. Oh, that's funny, yeah. That's funny. Good memory, by the way. Oh um because I'm March, still laughing. March twenty fifteen, I wake up to a text from Malcolm saying, Would you like to be waterboarded on BBC All Expenses Paid? Anyway. <laughs> Good morning to you, too. Is this coffee? <laughs> okay. Uh, and I didn't really, I mean, I, it just, it was such a, it's the weirdest request ever, right? And it culminated yeah. in, in May of 2015. We flew there and BBC did a special um, on uh, really what torture does when it comes to interrogation. Uh, you know, what does torture do uh, in the end? But yeah, the invite alone was really funny because. You know, I wake up at 6 a.m. to do my, you know, quick look at the phone for the headlines. And, uh, yeah, it was out of the out of nowhere, you know, uh, request to be tortured. You know, like, sure, man. Uh, and uh, love you, hey, too. You know? Yeah. And uh, thanks for asking. Oh, we're friends, right? You know, so we, we had a, a good yuck about it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I wound up going to, uh, to uh, you know, south of England and, we were on a base for a couple of weeks and, you know, went through some preliminary training to, to resist interrogation techniques. And here's the funny thing, actually, it's funny. I was just discussing this event a couple of days ago, how, you know, I was told not to reveal the plane that I flew in on oh, and not to reveal what unit I was with and not to, you know, like all these very specific things I was not supposed to say when being tortured. And the question that was lobbed at me in the middle of being drowned with cameras rolling, one shot, by the way, because we're not doing duplicate. No. Was, no. were you born a bunny rabbit? And I'm like, you know, now, to, to, to take up a moment, 
to explain the inner mindset because I don't think I've ever on the record discussed what happened in the, behind my brain. Uh, my, my brain stem's going crazy, right? Of course. Because first, first thing I do, and let me tell you the funny part of the story, and I, I'm, I'm going to keep it. I'm gonna keep it slightly compartmentalized for seared uh, technique purposes. Of course, I wasn't. I wasn't exactly told when the waterboarding part was gonna happen. I was. I was. There was some some bluffing going on about when the actual water would be applied, and suddenly I'm I'm facing a face full of water. So we're being we're being filmed on BBC, and uh, you know I did ten years of radio, and I know how not to say things on the radio even in a crisis. Mm-hmm. But the word that went through my head, and you got a podcast, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take liberties here. The sure. word that went through my head when people say, so what's the first thing that went through your head when you started waterboarding? I said the word motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, oh, you, you know, like, <laughs> that's the word that went through my head. But I'm a pro. You can't say that on BBC. So actually, I have to say under pressure, I know that I still won't say that on, on live BBC. Um, you can say it here. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for letting me get that off my chest because I've I've been holding that for uh, for four years. Oh wow! So, <laughs> so that's the first thing that went through my head. Now, the second thing went went through my head was okay. Um, try to um, outthink this water thing. Okay. Now, I will say that one of the people there on staff, uh, not with BBC, that was with us, said, uh, "No heroes today, please," because she knew me. She knows that I I'm willing to push the bar quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And and I promised her I wouldn't you know no John Waney you know so okay no problem you know meaning in other words get the segment done let's you know and I had never been waterboarded so I knew that you know uh, I didn't know what the experience was about to be uh, and I had already gone through half a week or so of other torture techniques that never wound up in the freaking film anyway that's kind of like disturbing yeah. you know you, you wall me you put me in stress positions but we don't air that stuff okay so. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm trying to think, well, how do I, how do I outmaneuver this? And, um, at some point the reptilian part of your brain takes over and starts saying, you know what, let's go negotiate this somewhere else. Let's go have this conversation about what you want to know somewhere else. And the kind of survival mechanisms kick into your brain. Of course. But what I was told was there is no dropping of the batons. There's no, you know, there's no safe word. You're answering the questions, and I'm not letting you off that freaking board wow. until you answer that question. Okay? And so the guy applying it starts applying it there, and I hear them saying, you know, you're drowning, and, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to be calm and cool. First off, let me caveat this. I'm trying to be calm for the BBC crew because they were panicked. They yeah. were terrified they were about to kill a guy yeah. with cameras rolling, right? Yeah. And I've already signed the disclosures, and I keep telling them, oh, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine, it's going to be, you know. And like, you, you're going to be okay? So I'm fine. Are you, are you okay? And I was actually more worried for them. If you ever watch the video on, B, uh, on YouTube, BBC Waterboarding, oh, my, my, my pulse rate actually dropped, which is kind of strange. You Whoa. would think it would go up, right? I would think so. You would think under stress yeah. my heart rate would go up. Watch it again. My heart rate was above, I don't know, above 110 before wow. it happened. And in the process, it went down to around 95. Unbelievable. Pretty high still, but I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. We're riding the wave. Glub, 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 glub. Were you born a bunny rabbit? Yes, I was born a bunny rabbit. Yeah. They get me off the board, right? It's over. And I sit down. The BBC journalist, uh, Hillary Anderson was her name. She's from Austin, moved to Britain years ago. So we're two Texans right there, right? Mm. And she says, wow, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And she said, she asked me about the question. I said, what did I say? 
she says, oh, do you remember the question? I go, no, what was the question? She's like, that was only four minutes ago. I said, oh, yeah, what was the question? She goes, you don't remember the question? I said, no, 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 what was it? She says, were you born a bunny rabbit? And I looked over, Malcolm was offset, you know, off to the side. Mm. I go, what? And he, start, he starts laughing and kind of nodding, like, yeah, yeah. I said, wow, wow. What, and what did I say? <laughs> she said, wow. said, yes. I go, I did. Okay, well, I guess I was born a bunny rabbit. Tells you everything you need to know about torture, doesn't it? Re- it really does, doesn't it? Then they started the, the questions that you see in the interview, uh, where they actually started rolling the camera to ask me questions. So there yeah. was that little four or five minute part where, you know, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I've been actually through uh, through hell that, that kind of makes that. You know, I'm, I'm a long time kung fu guy, so I've had the mm-hmm. absolute shit knocked out of me by my teachers. Yeah. Um, no, it was. it's really important to understand what was going on there because, yeah, the brain is willing to say whatever necessary. And since the whole point of the exercise essentially was to point out when you're interrogating someone using torture, you can't produce reliable intelligence. If right. you're looking for a forced confession, you got it. I was born a bunny rabbit. Great to talk to yep. you. Easter's coming, and I'm going to boing, boing, boing out of here. Well, on that positive note, um, and thank you so much for telling that story. That is amazing. Oh, you got it, man. Um, it's time for carrots. I'm hungry for carrots. Yeah, man. It's, it's been great. <laughs> I, uh, I hope we can do this again soon, okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you're doing it. Let me, let me put a little pitch out for what yes. you're doing. There were very few people who were doing what you're doing, and I think that I, I think that one of the things I really like about talking to you is that this is sort of like how I got started at this. Okay, back in 2006, I got very frustrated with the torture campaign, the lies about the Iraq war, certain things that were happening in the background that we were not getting answers on. So I started Veracity Radio uh, when I started leaving Pacifica Radio. And I started my own podcast because I'd been doing it on the air and helping others produce shows. But I said, you know what? I have my own questions. And that's mm-hmm. what led me to interview Malcolm Nance. Wow. So I did this hour-long interview with him, with Tony Camarino, with Joe Margulies, and you know Brigadier General David Irving, and everyone about torture, right? Wow. And then all of a sudden, I became the guy who's you know studying this stuff and doing stuff, and now you guys call me. And there were very few people <laughs> doing what I was doing back then. So just like that, you're doing this now, and there's only a few of you who are taking the time out of your time to put these shows together. And I hope that your listeners really appreciate what you're doing because you're sort of doing the news job that the main news guys and ladies are not quite doing. I'm sure they try. So for Mm. instance, I'll pay, you know, I have huge respect for Rachel Maddow, Mm. but Rachel Maddow is allowed about 20 minutes or so per segment to really accomplish a whole lot. She's amazing at it. Mm. She is like Dr. Maddow in my book. First Mm. off, she has a PhD. Um, so Dr. Mao does a great job. But see, with a podcast, and like I did with Malcolm, I said, go as long as you want, man. Yeah. I, I want to hear everything you have to say. And yep. that's the benefit of what you're doing. So you know, I, I'm honored as much to talk to you and proud of what you're doing as hey. it is to to have you talk. You know, so. I just I appreciate it, man. Like like you said, I'm just a guy who um, you know, I just I just had it, man. So I bought a mic and you know, here we Amen. are. Amen. Amen. Yeah. That's what it needs. If you ever need anything, you let me know. We'll have a report eventually. And uh, yeah. once we read through the report, that's it. All right. Uh, let, me invite all, let me invite all the listeners. Go to the, uh, it's, uh, oh, what is it? <laughs> it's uh, slash SEO. So what is it? Justice Department. Uh, go to the, you know, mm-hmm. just type in uh, the uh, special counsel. Type in special counsel in Google and go to the one that's the Department of Justice. And it's like a slash SEO for special counsel office. And read the indictments that are mm-hmm. already on file. And you will see George Papadopoulos, Roger Stone, 
Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. uh, Constantine, Constantine Kalemnik. Uh, you have um, uh, the the GRU mm-hmm. and the uh, Internet Research Agency, otherwise known as IRA. I, I have to say that out sometimes because the uh, Irish Republican Army. Um, and you have these indictments that tell you this story right. in, in almost indisputable form right. where when you're saying, oh, there's no collusion. Right. Sorry, the evidence does not show there was no collusion. Yeah, uh, the evidence def- definitely does not show that there was no obstruction of justice. <laughs> yep, it's so all out it's, there if you want it's it. It's out there if you want to. It's it's out there. You, that's a great point. It's out there if the, there's no excuse anymore for not knowing the truth because it's yeah, out there. Yeah, we call there. it willful willful ignorance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, brother. Well, um, I hope we can do this again soon. Okay. 